Well, good morning, BT. It is wonderful to see each and every one of you. Wonderful to be with you this morning. My name is Louie. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at BT Church. And this morning, I feel like it's a little bit of a family reunion. I haven't been here in a while at our McAllen campus. So it is good to see you all. Um, over the last several months, I've been uh, ministering primarily at our Sherryland campus. And church, I want you to know God is doing some amazing things, not only at our Sherry campus, across all our campuses. Please keep all of our campuses in prayer. It's amazing to see what God is doing. Amen? Amen, amen, amen. Would you once again just join me real quick in welcoming our first-time guests, our VIPs, right? Whether you're watching online, we want to welcome you. We're so grateful you're watching with us, or whether you're here physically with us for one of the first times, we want you to know that you are our VIPs. And I just want to reiterate what Pastor Joaquin said. If you can text that word, one word, BTVIP, to the number 97,000, uh, it's going to give us a great opportunity to get to know you, to connect with you, and to better serve you. So I pray that you will do that. Uh, you'll be prompted. Just follow the prompts on there. And it's going to give us a great opportunity to get to know you. Today, we're going to wrap up our uh, three-week prayer series. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we kicked off this prayer series that we're currently in. And we started on the 16th, which was the, the following Monday. That following day, we started a 21-day fast here at BT Church. Many of you are participating in it. Um, if you're not, it's not too late to join in. We've got one more week to go. Uh, we're on day 14 today, I believe, and we will wrap up our 21-day fast next Sunday. So we're excited about completing that together. And uh, if you were with us uh, at the beginning of the series, first week we talked about corporate prayer and what that looks like. The word corporate, all that means is large group. It means all our church is participating together. What does it look like when all the church is praying for the same things? Very powerful. If you were here last week, we talked about the pace of prayer, and we talked about how the key to praying is just never to stop. It's to be persistent, persistent, persist in your prayers, right? Don't stop seeking God. Don't stop asking God and just continue believing that God can move mountains, amen? That's what our God can do. So so grateful that you're here to wrap up our series. We're going to be, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, whether you've got a physical Bible or you've got it on your smart device, please open your Bible app or open your Bible to the book of Matthew chapter 6 in the, in the New Testament, first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. Open to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be there this morning. Before we get going there in Matthew 6, just want to give you a little background to where we're headed. Matthew 6 is the middle. It's the heart of the greatest sermon ever preached. Greatest sermon ever preached was preached automatically. I say that word. First thing that you, I say that phrase, the first thing you should be thinking of is, okay, what did Jesus preach? Jesus is the greatest preacher that ever lived. He preached the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. One day he stood on the mountainside there by the Sea of Galilee, and he began to teach us and he preached to us about what it means to live in his kingdom, what it means to live for our king. The Sermon on the Mount is all about kingdom living, how we as followers of Jesus Christ, as disciples of Jesus Christ, live for his glory and his kingdom. And if you call yourself a Christian, and you're living for something other than Jesus' glory and his kingdom, you're doing it wrong. That's not what we're, we're not called to call ourselves Christian. Then we get to do whatever we want. That's not how it works. He is our king. He is our master. We are his servants. We bow the knee to him. And so in this sermon, 
he preached and he taught us what it means to live for his kingdom. And he started this off with what we know as the Beatitudes and so on. And then went into teaching us about the law and reminding us what the standard is, right? Because Jesus said something in chapter 5, and we're not going to be in chapter 5, but as he was starting the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not think I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. And so what he meant was, I came to call you back to the standard. You've dropped the standard over the years. You've dropped the standard over the centuries, and you've let the standard go. So I'm not here to create a new standard. I'm here to call you back to the standard of what it means to live in my kingdom. And that's what this sermon is all about. And as you grow in your faith and as you read the Bible and as you study the Bible, there's going to be certain chapters in Scripture as you read them and as you study them, you're going to see that the chapter might be talking about different topics or different subjects or different areas but all through the chapter, there's the same theme that is woven throughout that chapter. Let me give you an example of what I mean. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus taught us three stories. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. That's how we know it, the story of the prodigal son. Three different stories, three different subjects, if you will, but the same theme weaves throughout all three stories because Jesus was trying to drive home a point again about who he is and who his father is and what is the theme of Luke 15 when you study the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. When the lost sheep, we read about a shepherd who had 100 sheep and at the end of the day, he was putting them back in their corral, back in their pen and he realized there was only 99. One of them was missing, one of them was lost and the shepherd was willing to leave the 99 in the pen who were safe and to go do whatever it took to go and find the one that was lost, amen? And it's a reminder to us as we read that story, we're not part of the 99. We're the one that's lost. And Jesus was willing to do whatever it takes to come and find us, amen, that we might be saved. Thank God for that. Story of the lost coin tells us about a woman who lost a coin in her house, and she turned that house upside down looking for that coin. She overturned every piece of furniture, looked in every corner, was willing to do whatever it took to find that lost coin, reminding us again of how our God loves us. And then in the story of the prodigal son, we read about how the father was willing to do whatever it took to wait until his son finally came to his senses and came back home and realized who he was. And when he got back home, the father didn't sit there with his arms crossed saying, I told you so, I knew you'd be back. No, the Bible tells us that he ran out to meet his son and he greeted him with a hug and a kiss and he put his robe on him and he put his sandals on him and he put his ring on him and he said, we're going to have a party because my son who was lost is now found. There's reason to celebrate, amen? So we see the same theme in each of these three stories and what is the theme? The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that's willing to do whatever it takes that you and I might be found, Amen? Willing to do whatever it takes. So every now and then you'll see a chapter where these kind of themes really just pop out to you. You say, man, there's symmetry here. Well, Matthew 6 is just like that, where we're going to be today. In Matthew 6, there's also basically three different subjects, but they're all talking about the same thing. See, in Matthew 6, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us how we should give, how we should pray, and how we should fast. How we should give how we should pray, and how we should fast. And the key here, 
the theme that is woven through all three subjects, it's about the motive of our heart. Why do we give? Why do we pray? And why do we fast? And what Jesus wants us to understand, what it means to live in his kingdom, is that he has great expectations of us. He has great expectations. When you call yourself a child of the king, when you call yourself saved by the blood of Jesus, and you wear the name Christian, you need to understand your king has great expectations of you. Sometimes that's overwhelming to us. That's the whole reason I don't like this whole Christianity thing. That's the whole reason I don't like this church thing, Pastor Louie, because the moment you, you, you start following his teachings and the moment you get involved in church, all of a sudden these expectations are placed on you. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about man-made expectations. And I'm not talking about people looking down their nose at you or judging each other. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about stuff that was made to weigh us down. I'm talking about stuff that's made to free us up. Jesus' expectations, that he would understand, that, that, that he would know that we understand that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He didn't come to give us more obligations. He didn't come to give us more regulations. He didn't come to make us religious. He came to set us free. He came to give us new life, amen? Y'all tracking with me so far, church? Okay? So when he says how to give and how to pray and how to fast, it's not more obligation. It's not more religious ritual. It's simply a part of what it means to function in the kingdom of God if you're going to live your life in a way that honors Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I care about living in a way that honors Jesus Christ because I wear his name. And he has saved me. I'm covered by his blood. That's a powerful thing that happens the moment we get saved. See, the moment you got saved, the moment you trusted in Christ for your salvation, something amazing happened. Your old person died and you became a new creature in Christ, which means Jesus clothed you in his righteousness and he put his identity on you. So you're no longer defined by your past. You're no longer defined by your mistakes. You're no longer defined by anything other than Jesus Christ. He is who defines you. You wear his name. You are a Christian. That means there's certain expectations of how you will live in honor of your king. Think about this. Jesus touches on three things in this chapter. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. Three powerful spiritual disciplines in the life of a believer. What does that mean? That term, that phrase, spiritual discipline, means something that you and I as believers should be practicing consistently in our life. But you know what else it means? It means it doesn't come naturally. It means it doesn't come easy. That's why they're called spiritual disciplines. Nobody likes that word discipline. We thought a lot about that word discipline. We're in the middle of a 21-day fast. For those of us that are participating in the 21-day fast, we're 14 days in. The things I'm fasting from, I can't tell you how many times I've automatically grabbed for one, reached for one, and reminded myself, oh, yeah, I'm fasting from that. Or better yet, my beautiful bride has reminded me, um, aren't you fasting from that? Oh, yeah, thanks, hon. I appreciate it. Thank you for keeping my walk with God where it should be, right? Amen. But notice what Jesus hits on in these three areas. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. The spiritual discipline of giving, that involves our spiritual growth and our spiritual maturity in how we relate to others. Because when we give, it impacts others. Amen? When we pray, that involves our spiritual maturity and our spiritual growth and our relationship with our God. When we seek our God, 
So that's our relationship to God. And then when you fast, fasting has to do with you personally. That involves your spiritual growth and your spiritual maturity on your own as you're growing in the Lord. So think about that. In this chapter, and remember, when Jesus preached this, there was no chapter divisions. There was no verse divisions. Those were were added later for our benefit. So when Jesus preached this message, in the heart of the greatest message ever preached, Jesus touched on three things that you and I should be living out consistently in our lives that are going to affect our relationship with others, our relationship with God, and ourselves, our relationship with ourself. How are we growing in every aspect? Because the goal of your life and the goal of my life as Christians is spiritual maturity. We want to mature in our faith. We want to leave the elementary teachings and the milk in the bottle that we give to babies, and we want to move on to solid food, amen? We want to move on to the the more uh, mature teachings of the faith and the doctrines of the faith so that we correctly understand God's word, so we can correctly handle God's word, so I can be used for God's glory, amen? The goal of your life is spiritual maturity. Why? Because as you grow in your faith and you become mature in your faith, your life will bring glory to God, and that's the ultimate goal of your life is to bring glory to God. So Jesus touches on these three important facets of our life and these expectations that he has for us. Because understand, up to this point in the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus has focused on the teaching of the law, what we believe. That's all chapter 5 is about. I'm I'm, I'm reminding you of the standard, and I'm calling you back to the standard. Right? And so this is what the law teaches, and this is what we believe. Now, at the beginning of chapter 6, he's going to make a transition from what the law teaches to the practice of the law. Not, he's talked about what we believe. Now, he's going to talk about what we do, how we live it out. So, this is the standard. This is what Moses taught you in the Torah. This is what the law says. How do you live that out? Well, let me teach you. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, this is what it should look like. How do you begin to live out your beliefs? Because belief always precedes action. Belief always comes before your actions. Belief will always precede practice, how you practice things, right? And practice always demonstrates your belief. What you do, what you're doing right now in your life, whatever it is that you're doing in this season of your life, what you're doing demonstrates what you believe about God. Think about that. Whether you're doing things that honor God or whether you're doing things that don't honor God, what you're doing in your life right now demonstrates what you believe about your God because your beliefs will always drive your actions, always. You live out what you believe, whatever that might be. And so Jesus wants to make sure that we understand that the key to everything is why we do it. He, He wants us to know that he's always looking at the motive of our hearts. It's a great reminder that we get taught throughout all scripture. In the Old Testament, there's a story when Israel was getting ready, when God was getting ready to name the second king of Israel. The first king had become a failure. And God had warned his people that that was gonna happen. First king of Israel was a man named Saul. He was great in stature. He, He fit the profile of a king. If you looked at his appearance, that guy should be the king of Israel. He started off good, but he ended poorly. He forgot about God. As a matter of fact, there's a tragic verse in Scripture that describes the life of King Saul. There's a verse in Scripture that says that the Holy Spirit left King Saul, and he wasn't even aware of it. He wasn't even aware of it. Now, we know now 
uh, on this side of the cross and because of the covenant with Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He has sealed us for those of us that are saved, and he will never leave us. The Holy Spirit now will never leave us. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did leave certain people. And the Holy Spirit left King Saul, and he wasn't even aware of it. What I wonder sometimes, if the Holy Spirit ever left, left some Christians, would we even know it? Would we even be aware of it? Or are you being led by the Holy Spirit so much in your life that you would know it if the Holy Spirit left? Although the promise is that he won't. Thank God for that. Amen? And so the new king was about to be named, and God sent his prophet, a man named Samuel, to the house of a man named Jesse. He said, I want you to go and I want you to look at Jesse's sons because the next king of Israel is going to come from among his sons. So the prophet Samuel made his way to Jesse's house. Now, Jesse had many sons, and most of these guys were built, good-looking. I mean, these guys, this that's what a king of Israel should look like. So the prophet Samuel gets there, and he looks at Jesse's first. Seven sons are brought before him, and all these guys are impressive, and it's like, no, it's not that one. No, it's not that one. He goes through all seven of them. He says, none of them. The Lord, the Lord is not moving in me that, that it's any of them. Jesse, do you have any other sons? He goes, well, yeah, I have one more. I have an eighth son, but I didn't even think to bring him in because he's the run of the litter. I mean, he's the youngest. He's the smallest. He hasn't really ever amounted to anything. As a matter of fact, right now, he's taking care of my sheep in the pasture. If you want, I can send for him. Yes, send for him. So they waited. They didn't eat, the Bible says, until he came in the room. And you know who it is. He walks in the room, and he's small, and he's frail, and he's the runt of the litter. The Bible says he was handsome, so he had that going for him, right? And we know this is David. David walks in the room, and immediately the Holy Spirit quickens Samuel. This is the one. The Bible says that Samuel got his anointing oil, and he anointed the head of David and declared, this is the next king of Israel. Now, even in that, David didn't immediately go to the palace. He got sent back to the pasture for a while. God told him, wait. It's not going to happen just yet. You will be king one day, but it's not yet. Sometimes that's the hardest answer to get when we pray to God. Wait. Not yes, not no, but wait. Sometimes God will even reveal something that's going to happen in our lives, but it's not going to happen immediately. Wait. Man, Lord, that's hard to do. It's hard to wait when you kind of have an idea of what God wants you to do, but that's exactly where David found himself. Why am I saying all that? Because we're talking about the motive of the heart. And what did God remind the prophet Samuel before he looked at any of the, of the boys? He saw the first sons and how impressive they looked. But what did God warn Samuel? Do not look at the outward appearance because man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. In other words, in everything that you do, God knows your heart and why you're doing it. And that's what matters most. Why do you give? Why do you pray? Why do you fast? Why do you sing? Why did you come to church today? Why do you do what you do? That's what God wants to see. That's what God wants to know. He wants to know the motives of your heart, and that's exactly what Jesus gets to here. And we're not going to talk about the first one, how to give, but we're going to jump right in in, in verse 5 of Matthew 6, and we're going to look at what Jesus said about praying and how to pray. Remember, we're talking about great expectations. Look at what Jesus says here in Matthew 6, starting in verse 5, and we're going to read to verse 8. How to pray. This is what Jesus said about prayer. If you pray, you must not like be the hypocrite, like the hypocrites. Right there, your radar should be going off. Louis, that's not what the Bible says. It says when you pray. Not if you pray, Christian, but when you pray. In other words, 
Jesus expects that prayer is going to be a normal part of your life. Jesus expects that your prayer life is going to be vibrant. It's going to be active. It's going to be consistent. It's going to be that something that you do on a consistent basis, just talking with God, calling out to God, crying out to God about everything, right? So he says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Did you get that, church? Your heavenly Father knows exactly what you need before you even ask for it. You're omnipotent, all-powerful, you're omniscient, all-knowing, you're omnipresent everywhere God knows exactly what you need before you even ask for it. Well, then what's the point of prayer, Pastor Louie? If God knows what I need and and he's going to answer according to his will, why even pray? Because God wants to know the motives of your heart. He wants to know. Are you willing to ask for something? Are you willing to seek him? Are you willing to chase him? Are you willing to be relentless in your prayers when you're praying for something? When we pray for God's provision and we pray for God's blessing and we pray for God's protection and we pray all the different things that we pray in our prayers for people and our family and ourselves and everything. And what God wants to know is, if you take away all that, will you still seek me? Because the most thing about prayer is not what God can give us and not how God can bless us and not how God can protect us. The most important thing about prayer is that we're seeking God for himself and he alone. That's, that's the most important part about prayer. If it was not about what God could give you or bless you with or protect you or anything, would you still seek him? Because you live in relationship with your great God. We have a relational God who desires to live in relationship with us. And what do we talk about? Our goal is spiritual maturity. If I'm going to grow and become the person God wants me to be and God created me to be, you better believe that prayer better be an active part of my life and your life. We better be seeking God's face consistently, continually. When you pray, great expectations Prayer is an expectation of the Christian life. Make sure you get that down. Prayer is an expectation. God expects us to pray. God expects us to seek him. When you pray for the Christian in my kingdom, Jesus said, it is a given that you are going to seek me, that you're going to pray to me, that you're going to call out to me because you understand that I can move mountains because you understand that I can answer any request according to my will because you understand that I am sovereign and have the power and the authority to change things and mold things. That's who our God is. Do we have that understanding of him? I'm reminded of a, of, of a little phrase, a little saying that a, a good friend of ours here, uh, uh, for those of us that are on staff at BT, we have a friend of ours who, who technically is on staff here. He's our staff evangelist. And he comes in, he doesn't live here, but he comes in from time to time. And last year, a couple years ago, he led a staff devotional for us at one of our staff meetings, our monthly staff meetings with all of our staff. And he taught us about prayer and he said this, and I've never forgotten it. He said, the greatest sign of pride in your life is the lack of prayer in your life. 
That's the greatest sign of pride that you give God when you don't pray. Because you know what your lack of prayer life tells God? It tells God that you think you've got it all figured out and that you think you've got it all handled and you don't need his help. And as a matter of fact, what it communicates to God is that the only time you will talk to him is in emergency mode. So you see God no different than the glass case outside in the hall that has the, the, the fire uh, deal, right? In case of emergency, what do we do? Break the glass, right? That's how a lot of us see prayer. In case of emergency, I'm going to break the glass to the ceiling, and then I'm going to talk to you, Lord, but only then. Other than that, I've got it handled. I've got it figured out. The key to growth in your prayer life is when you go to God understanding, even when everything is wonderful and everything is great in your life and you feel you're in control, you still go to God and give him the glory anyway because you understand that that's an illusion. You're never in control and I'm never in control. God is in control and that's why we seek him. God is in control. So Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Oh, there's that word, man. Hypocrite in church, right? Don't be like the hypocrites. Why? Well, you know their motivation to pray. They just want to be seen by others. They love to pray in the synagogues. They love to pray in the street corners because they know they'll be seen. And that's all they want out of their prayer. They're not even truly seeking me. All they want is the notoriety they're going to get for praying in front of others so that people will think they're something special. They've gotten their reward already. They're not truly seeking me. They're not truly seeking even what I can give them. All they want to do is look good in front of others. See, the synagogue and the street corners, those were the places you would, those were the places you would pray in public. Synagogue was where you gathered for worship. Street corners, people knew that that was a place to pray during the day because Jewish people were commanded to pray three times a day. Three times a day. And those specific times that you were to pray, it didn't matter where you were or what you were doing, you stopped whatever you were doing and right where you were, you began to pray to God. So is it amazing that they knew the times that they needed to pray, how convenient it was that every time it came to pray, they just happened to be on a street corner where everybody could see them. I'm talking about the Pharisees. I'm talking about the religious leaders of their day who cared more about looking good in front of people than sincerely chasing after God. Jesus called them hypocrites. If there's one thing Jesus could not stomach, it was hypocrisy. They say, well, pastor, then what hope do we have? Because you're talking about calling out to God, and you're talking about being consistent and doing it continually. But man, nobody here bats a thousand. Nobody here is perfect. Well, duh, that's why we need Jesus. So don't sweat that. Don't, 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 don't make it some religious hurdle that you have to cross, you know, jump over. No, the key is about consistently and continually seeking God and understanding that his mercies are new every morning. Aren't you grateful, church, that your God's mercies are new every morning towards you? Huh? Aren't you grateful that God's grace is bigger than your biggest mistake? Huh? I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful that when I've blown it and I didn't carve out time to spend with God and I missed a day or a day became a couple of days or a couple of days became a week and I haven't talked to God. And Louis, what do you mean? You're a pastor. You're paid to be a Christian, to be a professional Christian. No, that's not how it works, folks. I got to walk with God just like you do, and I stumble just like you do. And there's times where I go to God with my hat in hand and my tail tucked between my legs saying, Lord, I know I haven't talked to you in a while, but it's me again. I'm sorry. And God is looking at the motives of my heart. And he knows that what I'm sincere, you know what I hear? He said, Louis, I'm glad you're back. You're my beloved son whom I love and adore. What do you want to talk about? And we talk. And I read scripture and God talks to me. 
and that time is precious. And I'm reminded every time I spend time with God, why don't you do this every day? It's amazing when you spend time with your heavenly father. And that's all Jesus is saying here. He says, don't, don't, don't worry about praying in public. He said, Louis, who'd be worried about praying in public? I, I fear praying in public. Are you kidding me? Yeah, but you'd be amazed. Some people actually seek it out. They seek it out just so that they can look good in front of others. Hey, we pray in public here. We pray at our services. We have a Wednesday night prayer night, the first Wednesday of every month. We gather and we pray and we ask people to pray and we pray out loud. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, it comes back to what? Your motive. Why are you doing what you do? Why are you praying that way? Why are you seeking God that way? Why are you doing what you do? The key to everything is motive. Prayer is an expectation and Jesus expects us to approach him with the right motive. Private devotion means more than public perception. Private devotion will always mean more than private than than public perception. What do we mean by this? Well, it says go to God in the in, in who knows what's done in secret. What does that mean? Another way of saying that is this. Go to God in that secret place where it's just you and him. It's nobody else, not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents, not your brothers and sisters, not your friends, not your church family, just you and God. Do you have a, a place where you meet that it's just you and God? Do you have a time every day where you know it's going to be your time with God? If you haven't discovered the consistency of that, I want to challenge you to do that. Find a place that is just you and God. It's your place. My wife and I, we have certain places around town in our history together. Those are our places, right? Favorite place. This is our place to go here. There are places that are special to us, right? Do you have a place like that with God? This is where I meet with God personally, just me and him. It's not even Michelle that's involved. It's just me and him. It's not any one of my four kids that are involved. It's just me and him. This is our place. This is our time where I know it's just going to be me and him, where I can cry my heart out to my God, and he will hear me, and he'll understand. Do you have that place? Because that's what Jesus is talking about here. That's how consistent, that's how meaningful your prayer life should be, that you seek God with the right heart. But when corporate prayer, when public prayer becomes narcissistic, that's not good for anybody. What is narcissistic? You're in love with yourself. Some people love to pray in public because they just love the sound of their voice. They want to hear their own voice. They've already gotten their reward. They're not getting out of anything going to God. They've already gotten what they wanted. People are noticing them. People are seeing them. That's not the motive to pray. God looks at our motives. You know, in my responsibilities here at BT, I have the privilege of working with all of our campus pastors that oversee our different campuses. And one of the things that we talk about consistently, we meet on a consistent basis. One of the things we talk about consistently is how can we get better at preaching, becoming better preachers. We, we want to become better preachers. We, 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 we want to be able to sh sh show God that, hey, that, that's meaningful to us because we take very seriously the charge we've been given to expose the word of God to the people that we love, right? And I share with our CPs, our campus pastors, that ministerially speaking, if, if you were to ask them to answer this sentence, fill in the blank, I never feel more alive than when blank. I ask them to think of, the, in ministerially speaking, not family, not marriage, not anything like that, just as ministers, as pastors, how would you fill in that phrase? I never feel more alive than when I fill in the blank as a pastor, as a minister. For me, I fill in the blank, and I shared it with them. I never feel more alive ministerially than when I'm preaching. I love to preach. 
I, I, I feel that's one of the gifts God has given me, and I'm not trying to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to do what, exactly what I'm telling you not to do here. I'm doing it for a reason. Because I love preaching so much, what I have to guard against is loving preaching and not loving the people that I preach to. And so what I tell our campus pastors all the time is as much as you love preaching like I do, make sure that you love the people that you preach to more than you love the act of preaching. That's something that is about motive. That's something that is about the heart. And I pray that as much as I love preaching, I love you all a whole lot more than I love preaching. And that's why I want to preach well to you. And that's why I want to expose the word of God to you because I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to teach you what the word of God says and all our pastors and preachers that share our pulpits do, right? But we have to remember that, that we got to have the right motives. I got to have the right motives when it comes to doing the things that I love to do that God has called me to do. You got to make sure you have the right motives also when you serve, when you give, when you pray, when you live your life as a Christian. And that's what we see here. So then Jesus jumps into, this is how you should pray. He gives us an example, right? And so the next thing I want you to understand is, is how we are to pray. Jesus gives us an example. We know it is the Lord's Prayer. Some people know it as the Our Father. But this is not the Lord's Prayer. This is actually the disciples' prayer. This is how you and I are supposed to pray as his disciples. You want to read the Lord's Prayer, read John 17. That's Jesus' prayer when he prayed for the church, that we would be one in him that we would be united, the world would see our unity so that they would believe. That's the Lord's Prayer. This is a model prayer. Jesus taught us to, to model our prayers after this prayer. The danger with the Lord's Prayer is that it becomes a prayer that it's not just we learn from, but it's a prayer that we memorize and we begin to recite. What's the danger with reciting our prayers? Eventually, we say them to where it doesn't even mean anything to us anymore. We know it by heart and we just say it without even thinking about it, Right? Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about, especially with this prayer. Everybody learns this prayer when they're little. Whether you have a walk with God or not, whether you're in a relationship with God or not, whether you go to church or not, everybody learns this prayer. How do I know? Because if you know anything about my background, I played athletics forever. From the time I was about four or five years old to the time I was about 22, 23, I was in organized athletics in some form or fashion. And basically every team I was ever a part of, we ended every practice praying this prayer. And everybody knew it, and everybody had it memorized, and what would happen is we would begin to race through it to see how fast we could do it. And you're not even thinking about what you're saying anymore, right? You just get going, trying to finish first, right? It becomes a race. That's what happens when prayer just becomes resuscitation, when it just becomes something that you recite without even thinking about it. That's not what Jesus intended here. He didn't give us this prayer so that we would memorize it and then say it without even thinking about it. What he wants us, he wants us to learn from this model. He wants to see the pattern of what our prayers should look like. So it's not necessarily about memorizing the words. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying this prayer. It's Scripture. You should pray Scripture. But the gist of what Jesus is saying here is that it's a model for us to learn from. There's a pattern, should be a pattern to our prayer. So let's break that pattern down. And I'm going to share some words as we break this next passage down. Look at what this next passage says. Jesus says, therefore, when you pray, you should pray like this. I'm in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. 
But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. This is the model prayer. And what I want you to understand, the second thing I want you to get down today is that prayer is the reward. Prayer is the reward. Not what God can give me, but God himself. That's what makes prayer so powerful. The reward is not what I can get from prayer. The reward is being with God. Prayer is the reward. I get to be with God. I get to spend time with God. I get to spend time with my heavenly father. My prayer life connects me to him. We pray to the father, right? So let's look at this pattern of scripture. I'm going to give you some words that break down this pattern. These words are not original to me. There's nothing new under the sun. I got these words from a ministry hero of mine who I saw the way he broke this prayer down one time. I said, that's it. I'm using that. And I've used it forever. I've used it for years. How do we break this prayer down? Well, it always starts with the right person. There's an object to our prayer. We pray to someone. Make sure you're praying to the right person. How did Jesus start this prayer? Our Father in heaven. I'm praying to my heavenly Father. I'm praying to my creator. I'm praying to the one who can move mountains. I'm praying to the one who can move in my situation. I'm praying to the one who loves me more than anybody does, the one who knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm praying to the one who has my best interests at heart. I'm praying to the one who wants more for my life than even I do. He wants more for your life than even you do. That's who we're praying to, our Father who art in heaven, our Father in heaven. I gotta pray to the right person. Make sure you get that down. That's the pattern of the type of prayer that honors God. We gotta acknowledge the right person, our heavenly Father, our Abba. Abba, I cry out to you. Abba is the Aramaic term. Aramaic is the language Jesus spoke. Aramaic, Abba is the Aramaic term for daddy. Doesn't exactly mean daddy, but it's very close. It's a term of intimacy. Intimacy between you and your heavenly father. It's not some impersonal relationship. You have intimacy with your father. Why? You know his son. His son has saved you. So when you pray, you pray to the father in the name of the son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Every time you pray, the Trinity is involved. You're praying. There's an object to your prayers, your heavenly father. There's a way to get that prayer to your heavenly father. It's through his son. You pray in his name. And when you're doing it, you realize you're praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. And how powerful is that? The Bible promises you that even when you don't know what to pray, Christian, but because you make it a priority to pray to your God, in those moments when you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit will pray for you. He will utter to the Father on your behalf. I know because it's happened with me. I've been so sometimes just distraught in prayer the, 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 the rug's been pulled out from under me. God, I don't even know what to pray. The Holy Spirit guides me to the Father to seek his face, to pray to him. We start with the right person, but then from the right person, we go to the right priority. Make sure you get that. After person, it's the right priority. And what's the priority? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the right priority. God's kingdom first. See, after we honor God for who he is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know what that means anyway, by the way, hallowed be your name? Pastor, I've prayed that all my life and I have no clue what that means. You know what it means? It means that you set apart your Father in heaven as holy. You're saying there's no one like you. There's no one like you. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart. When you say hallowed be your name, you're declaring that he is holy and there's no one like him. No one like him at all. That's who you're praying to, right? So you set him apart as holy. He is unique. 
He's in a class all by himself. When you recognize that, then you have the right priority. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, later in the sermon, later in this chapter, in verse 33, Jesus would be teaching us about anxiety and worry and the cares of this world and what we're to do with them. And he said this, he says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Instead, do this. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Are you living kingdom first, his kingdom, or are you trying to live your kingdom first? It doesn't work that way. You live his kingdom first. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, I want your will to be done in my life. What does God's will mean? It means he gets his way every time. He is sovereign. He is king. He is in control. Quit believing that the point of your prayers is trying to change God to your agenda, getting God's agenda on your agenda. It doesn't work that way. The point of prayer is that you begin to align your agenda to God's. You begin to bend your will to God's because it's God who's going to get his way, not you. That's how it works. That's why a lot of us get frustrated because we don't like that. Oh, give me heaven free. I, I, I want to get out of hell. Yeah. But man, give up control of my life. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm the king of my life. If you're the king of your life, you got problems. If you're the queen of your life, you got problems. There's only one king and you're not him. His name is Jesus. That's who we serve. Your kingdom come your will be done. It's okay if I didn't get an amen. It's still true. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, your will be done in my life. Who reminded us of that? Jesus himself and his humanity. Can I remind you of the night before he went to the cross? When he was in the garden of Gethsemane and the weight of the cross was on him and he knew what was going to be coming and what did he call out to his heavenly father? That he was in habit in his walk here on earth of speaking with his heavenly father every day. And what did he say? If there's any way that this cup can pass from me. He prayed that in his humanity. Man, if there's any way I can avoid going to the cross, but then what did he say? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. You want to improve your prayer life? Just learn that. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God, I want your will to be done in my life. And if your will is different than my will, I'm not trying to change you to my will. I want to change to your will. Your will be done in my life, the right priority. But then after that, Jesus does teach us to pray for certain things. So we start with the right person, and we have the right priority, but then we pray for provision. How do we pray for provision? Give us this day our daily bread. You take your daily needs to God, and you give them to him. And what does he promise to do with your needs? He's promised to meet every one of your needs, not your wants. He didn't promise to meet your wants. God, you know I want this. Oh, I know you want that, but that's not what's best for you. I'm not giving you that. But I promise to meet your needs, and I'm going to meet every one of your needs. I might not meet them how you think, or I might not meet them the way you want, but I have promised to meet every one of your needs, and God will. So pray for your needs daily. What are your needs? Pray for your needs daily. Well, does that mean we can't pray for our wants? No, pray for your wants. But God's not obligated to give you your wants. He is obligated in his word to give you your needs, to meet your needs. Why? Because he's promised and he never fails on a promise. That's who our God is. We pray for provision. After that, we pray for pardon. So it's provision, then pardon. Why? Forgive us our debts as we also forgive those, our debtors, right? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In the manner that we forgive, Jesus would say, that's how you're going to be forgiven also. 
It's going to be really hard for some folks who can't forgive anybody but still want God's forgiveness. You're going to be in for a rude awakening because you're going to understand one day that your heart never changed. What was proof that your heart never changed? You could never forgive anybody else when they had hurt you, yet you expected forgiveness when you hurt God. doesn't work that way, folks. Somebody that's been pardoned, somebody that has received grace and mercy is going to excel at giving grace and mercy to others because you've been given grace and mercy by your heavenly Father. Are you all with me, church? You all don't look too happy with me right now. Huh? All I can share with you is God's word and what God's word teaches us. Like I said, I'd love to tell you I live by this perfectly every day. No. I need Jesus every day just like you do. I need to be reminded that I'm a sinner every day just like you do, but I'm grateful that that's not my nature anymore because Jesus has clothed me in his righteousness and his identity, and so I have hope just like you have hope. Amen? So we go from pardon to now forgive us our debts as we forgive others, and we go to protection. Why? Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Pray for protection. God's protection over your life, your marriage, your family, your relationships, your career, everything else. We're all one decision away from blowing it. We're all one decision away from really messing up. But even when we do, God is there and he's gracious and he's merciful. Run back to your father. Run back to your father. Run back to your father. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. There's nothing you've done that is so bad that God would give you the Heisman and keep you away. God welcomes you. If you've messed up and you feel like you've blown it and there's no way God could forgive you, quit believing the lies from the enemy and start believing the truth of his word. God is gracious and compassionate and merciful. And when you come to him with the right heart, you are forgiven of anything and everything. That's who our great God is. That's who our great God is. But we pray for protection that we don't even get there to begin with. Amen? God, keep me from that to begin with. I don't want to do that. Protect me, Lord. Protect my life. And then it comes back to praise. Why? Because in some translations, how does this prayer end? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. End your prayers with praise. Remind yourself of who your great God is. What did we sing today? How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. Do you tell God how great he is in your prayers? And you can't think of enough adjectives to describe the greatness of your God and how awesome he is. But pray that in your prayers and end your prayers with praise. It's an amazing thing that happens when we give God our hearts and we approach God with the right motives. When you pray... And Jesus didn't just leave it there. He said, pray like this. This is the model prayer. And it's going to involve all these different things, the right person, the right priority, and everything else that follows. That's what needs to be in your prayers. You don't have to memorize this. You don't have to recite this. Just make sure that in your prayers you're praying to the right person and you have the right priority and you're praying for pardon and, and provision and every other thing that we see in this model prayer. Man, do I have to pray that every time, Pastor? It's great if you can, but prayer is just about seeking God. And there can be elements of those things in your prayers when you pray to God. Amen? Because then Jesus finishes with this, and this is what I want to leave you with. Prayer is an expectation, but make sure you get this down. 
fasting is an expectation. Uh, I knew you were going to hit on this, Louis. My goodness. Can't we just stop here? Isn't it time for you to be done? No, I actually have a little bit more time. We can't stop here because Jesus didn't stop here. He said, when you fast. He didn't say if you fast. He said, when you fast. Fasting is a powerful spiritual discipline in the life of a believer, just like prayer is and just like giving is. And we have to discipline ourselves to do all three. They don't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally for me to give of my hard-earned money. It doesn't come naturally for me to pray and acknowledge there's somebody greater than me. And it doesn't come naturally for me to want to give something up just so I can grow, grow closer to God. But I've got to do all three. I don't got to do all three to be saved. I don't got to do all three to earn God's love. I got to do all three because I'm saved and because God loves me and because I want to live a life that honors him because I've grown in my spirit maturity. Are y'all tracking with me, church? Huh? All right. So when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus says, when you fast. Look at what he says here. Look at what he says in verse 16. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, when, it's an expectation. Jesus has great expectations for us. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Think about that. When you fast. You know, there's a, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing in, in church circles. Uh, you know, the, the, the going thing is that you don't ever have to wonder if people are fasting. Just stick around long enough and they'll tell you, right? Because when we're fasting, everybody knows about it, man. Man, don't even talk to me. I'm just miserable today. Why? Oh, my pastor, my crazy pastor was talking to God again, and he decided our church was going to do a 21-day fast to start the year, and I'm in the middle of this 21-day fast, and I gave this up, and I'm doing that. Nothing wrong with telling people you're fasting. Just don't Make yourself the, the poor victim of the fast, if you will, right? No. Okay, yeah, I'm fasting. It's a spiritual discipline. I know we're fasting as a church. I want to encourage you. You encourage me. We'll pray for each other as we're fasting. But we're going to seek God. What is fasting? It's abstaining from something for the specific purpose of growing closer to God. So it's not a diet. Oh, this is great, man. I joined the gym. Now my church is doing a 21-day fast. Man, I'm going to speed up in my weight loss. No, that's not what fasting is. Fasting is giving something up for the purpose of growing closer to God. That's simple. You know why we give up something to grow closer to God, to draw closer to God? Because when we fast, it reminds us, I need nothing more than I need God. I need God more than the air that I breathe. I need God more than the food that I eat. And I need God more than the water that I drink. I need God more than anything. And fasting reminds me of that. That's why we got to do it on a consistent basis. I hope you're not, the only time you're planning to fast is this 21-day fast. You said it, Louie, one more week, man, next Sunday. And I'm done fasting for the year. No. This is just a corporate fast we're doing together as a church. Fasting needs to be a consistent part of your life. It keeps you tethered to God. keeps you focused on God. We can fast for different reasons. We can fast from different things. Every fast in Scripture was from food. Every fast in Scripture was from food. 
We say, well, yeah, Louis, they didn't have much back then. They had to fast from food. What else could you fast from? That's true. Because today, it would do a lot of us good sometimes to fast from social media. It would do a lot of us good to fast from our phone. God forbid. Louis, are you kidding me? All right, who's your God? Who's your God? It do us good to fast from television. Do us good to fast from extracurricular activities sometimes. Because sometimes that overwhelms our life. Whatever it takes that I need to cut out to remind me there's nothing more important than God. And why do, why do we fast? I know in the Bible people fasted for different reasons. Yeah, but there's no other reason other than I want to know God more and I want to grow closer to God. Now, yes, there's different reasons to fast. In the Bible, there's different reasons to fast. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he began his public ministry. And he did a complete fast. No bread, no water, nothing for 40 days. It was during this time that Satan attacked him, tempted him in three different ways. And every time he responded with the word of God and defeated Satan. Because that's what a fast will do. While you may grow weaker physically, you grow stronger spiritually. And Jesus answered Satan and rebuffed him every time. And the Bible says at the end of those 40 days, physically he was weak and the angels attended to him. So yeah, you'll feel a fast. But when you feel it, when you feel those hunger pains, when you feel a little bit of anger, oh, why am I doing this fast? Lord, that reminds me i got to come to you because I depend on you more than I depend on anybody else and anything else. People fast for different reasons. Nehemiah fasted in Scripture because he heard about the condition of Jerusalem and how the walls had been broken down around his hometown. He fasted and prayed and sought the Lord about that condition because he recognized that the broken down walls spoke to the glory of God and the glory of God was at stake. So he fasted and prayed for a way to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and that's exactly what God did for him. You see, we fast because we're commanded to. We fast to follow Jesus' example like I already mentioned. We fast to grow closer to the Lord. And quite honestly, sometimes we fast for supernatural breakthrough. And that scares some people, that word supernatural. You know, Louis, we're, we're kind of a conservative church. We don't use the word supernatural here. Don't be scared of the word supernatural. All it means is that God is taking what's naturally gone in your life and putting his super on top of it. And God is working miracles in your life and in my life, and God does that. If you have the discernment and the wisdom to look with spiritual eyes, God is doing miracles all around us. All around us. When somebody gets saved, when somebody gets baptized... When somebody you have been inviting to church forever and ever finally says yes and walks through these doorways, those are miracles that God allows us to see. And those are just some of them. There's a lot more. There's a lot of different reasons to fast. Do you know your why? Does God know the motive of your heart? Different people fasted. Esther fasted in Scripture and led all of her people to, to fast. Why? to save her people, that they wouldn't be annihilated off the face of the earth. There was an Old Testament Hitler named Haman who wanted to wipe out all the Jews and Esther could do something about it. So they fasted and prayed about that and God moved. You want to read about a powerful fast? Read Daniel chapter 10. You know what happened there? In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel was part of the Babylonian captivity. He was given the name Belshazzar. And in Daniel 10, Daniel was praying for a supernatural breakthrough. He was praying to be given a vision by God that he would be able to prophesy to his people and give them hope. And Daniel 
fasted for 21 days before there was a breakthrough. Oh, that's why. Man, this popular thing now is the Daniel fast. They've written books on it. And I wondered why 21 days? Well, because in Daniel 10, Daniel fasted for 21 days and had a breakthrough. Daniel fast, all vegetables. Are you kidding me? Praise God, I'm right there with you. But it, it's powerful, all right? You know what happened on that 21st day? An angel of the Lord appeared to Daniel. You know what the angel told him? Daniel, we know you started fasting and praying 21 days ago. And from the moment you started fasting and praying, the ear of heaven has been attentive to your cries. And I've been meaning to get to you for 21 days, Daniel, but I was held up. You know who held me up? The demon over Persia, the prince of Persia. He would not let me get to you. And I've been trying to get to you for 21 days, but you didn't stop praying and you didn't stop fasting. And I did battle with the prince of Persia. I did battle in the spiritual realms that you weren't even aware of. And the battle got so intense, Michael and his angels had to show up and help me and we defeated him. Michael is one of the archangels in scripture. Michael is the commander and general of God's armies. And Michael showed up to do battle. When you fast, when you pray, when you seek God, there's battles going on in the heavenlies we're not even aware of. And the angel broke through and he said, Daniel, I've been able to get to you because you persisted in prayer and you persisted in your fasting and you're going to get the breakthrough you were praying for. And Daniel was given a vision a vision of what God had in store for his people. And Daniel got to tell his people of the vision. Not only did he tell his people, but he told the king. He told King Nebuchadnezzar what was coming. And just as Daniel prophesied, that's exactly what happened. Something supernatural happens when you fast and pray and when you believe what your God has said. When you show your faith. There's nothing like it, church. There's a reason our our church is doing a 21-day fast together. There's a reason we're beginning the year teaching on prayer because we believe God can do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. I believe that for my family. I believe that for my marriage. I believe that for my friendships. I believe that for my ministry. I believe that for my church. And we're believing it together. You're still waiting on your breakthrough? Keep praying. Keep fasting. You've gotten what you prayed for? Keep praying, keep fasting. You want to know God better? Keep praying, keep fasting. Church, would you stand with me? Let's stand together and let's go to our great God. But before we do, I just want to encourage you today. You might be saying, Louis, when you talked about your lack of prayer life being a great sign of pride, man, that hit me. That's not fair. Who told you about me? I can promise you, church, nobody ever tells us anything about anybody. I've met with God all week. He's given me an assignment, and I've tried to expose the scriptures to you. That's all. But something powerful happens when God's word is preached. It penetrates our hearts. So if you're under some conviction today, that's a good thing. Because i got some good news for you. You might be feeling guilty about it. You might be feeling bad about it. You might be feeling wrong about it. But that's okay. God forgives. He's looking at your heart. We fast, we pray, we seek God. What are you fasting for? You know, I can look back on my life, see seasons of life where I fasted and how God moved. I can look back on prayer journals 20 years ago. And actually, my journals were happening before the 20 years. 21, 22, 23 years ago, 
where I believed in my time with God that he was calling me to plant a church. 20 years ago, we planted that church in McAllen. And I pastored that church for 13 and a half, 14 years. And I can still remember fasting and praying about that very thing. And then early in 2017, I got invited to go to a conference with the staff at BT. Pastor Chris, Pastor Marshall, Pastor Nick, and all the staff were going to actually two conferences in one week. We went to a seminary in Fort Worth for a conference. Then we went to the Village Church in Dallas in Flower Mound for another conference. And unbeknownst to me, I was going to get ambushed by Pastor Chris, who had a plan all along. And the first night we were there, he asked to meet with me and talk with me. And we went to one of the rooms we were staying in, just me and him. And he painted a vision to me. We had known each other. We were friends. We'd grab lunch from time to time. We would always pray for each other in our ministries. And he said, Louie, i got to share something God's put on my heart, man. I, I just can't get away from it. I've shared it with our elders, and they know I'm going to talk to you tonight. And The reason I'm standing across the room from you is I don't know how you're going to react, so I don't know if you're going to take it well or if you're going to punch me in the face. He says, but God has told me that I need to tell you this, and you do with it what you want. And he said, what would it look like if our two churches merged and we were better together? And he began to share with me the multi-site vision that BT had. We had just launched BT Sherry a month before when we went on this conference. Sherry was one month old. And he cast a vision of what he believed could be. And something amazing happened as we were having the conversation. I'd had conversations like that before. Been invited to pastor in other places before. Always sensed God saying no immediately. But this time I didn't sense him saying no immediately. And I said, Chris, all I can tell you is that God is not telling me no right away. But I'll tell you this. I not only need to fast and pray about it, but the first thing I need to do is I need to tell Michelle so she'll fast and pray also. We talked all night. I didn't sleep a wink that night, just thinking about what God might be doing. I knew my bride was back home and she was asleep already, so I just texted her phone and I said, hey, when you wake up this morning, I, I just need you to begin to fast and pray. When I get home on Friday, we'll talk about it, but just fast and pray and I'm gonna do the same. And of course, that day, Michelle tries, she's calling me and is like, what's going on? What happened? Why are you telling me to fast and pray? Why do I need to be fasting and praying? So we got to talk and I told her and I said, look, you pray about it and fast. I'm going to pray about it and fast. We'll talk this weekend. We'll see if we're even on the same page there. Because we're one. We're one flesh. I'm, I don't ever do anything without my wife's discernment. Um, so we prayed about it, got home. We talked about it. We believe God could be in it. So I talked with Chris the next week, and I said, look, before we do anything, I need some time to pray and fast so I can go to my church and ask them to pray and fast because we're seeking God's direction. We did for about the next month. We prayed. We fasted. We met as a church. Eventually, we invited Chris and Nick to come over and share the vision. And in that whole process, by June 1st, we were one church and merged together in 2017. All because of fasting and praying. And I'd love to tell you it only happens during the good times. But in the worst season of my life, the most difficult season of my life, I took my oldest daughter. She was in middle school at the time. Took her to what I thought was a routine doctor appointment. She had something come up on her skin. I was so naive. I told her to go to school and tell the trainer to put some cream on it. My wife goes, are you kidding? Take her to the doctor today. I was like, oh, I have so many things to do. Took her to the doctor expecting to be a routine visit. And I was in for the shock of my life. 
The doctor said things to me in that room that floored me and knocked me to my knees. And real quickly I realized, do I believe what I say I believe? And my world was thrown for a loop and the rug was pulled out from under me. And I was so glad Miha wasn't in the room because I was a mess and the doctor didn't let her come back in the room until I composed myself. My wife is a teacher. She was at school. I called the office and I said, this is one of those times you need to get her no matter what. I don't care what she's doing. I need to talk to her right now. And they did. They're so good. And I tried to explain to her what the doctor had just told me and I couldn't get the words out. And I told her, you need to meet us over here right now. And we began a season of fasting and praying for a specific purpose, for our daughter's healing. And I want to tell you that's, that's, that's the easiest fast I've ever done because I was motivated. And it was a joy to fast for my girl. And I sought God and I cried out to God and we would have appointments every month and her numbers had to be a certain way and we had to see signs of improvement and over the course of a little less than a year, we went to those monthly appointments and little by little, God chose in his sovereignty to heal our girl. And I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, my church, that most difficult season when I fasted and prayed and sought the Lord, I've never felt closer to God. And I've never felt more intimacy with the Lord and that scares me because it shouldn't take that for me to feel that close to my God. Now, he chose to heal her. He could have chosen not to do so, and we would have praised his name, and we would have sung his praises, because he is to be praised in the good and the bad. He is to be praised whether he answers the way we want or he doesn't. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not granting us three wishes. We're aligned to his will, right? And that's all that fasting that season was. God, align me to your will. Now, I'm asking certain things of you, but align me to your will. We got to give. We got to pray. We got to fast. I'm going to ask our altar ministers to come forward. Altar ministers, would you come forward? As they come forward, I want to ask you right now, what is it that you need to give to God? Our altar's open. What have you been hearing from God? How have you been seeking God? Have you not been seeking God? Bring it to God. It's okay. He'll forgive you if you come with the right heart, with the right motive. This altar is open for any and every need you might have. Have you been carrying something? Bring it to God. Are you celebrating something? Bring your celebration to God. Bring it to the altar. But first and foremost, you want to talk about spiritual breakthroughs? You need to know that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that's the greatest breakthrough God could make in your life. That you would move from death to life today because you have placed your faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, your Savior. You've trusted what He did for you on the cross. You believe that His blood has the power to wash away your sins and you're trusting in Him and Him alone for your salvation. Have you cried out to God in that manner? Church, would you bow your heads with me? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I just want to extend an invitation right now to all who are listening, whether you're watching online or whether you're here physically. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Do you know Jesus is your Savior? Has there been a moment that you recognize your need of Him? You bowed the knee in faith and you declared 
I need you, Jesus. Come into my life and make me brand new. Forgive me of my sins. You're the only one that has the power to do so. Have you done that? Because if you haven't, there's no better time than right now. God is calling you. Make no mistake. He's given you the gift of his son. What will you do with that gift? What will you do with Jesus? Will you receive him by faith? Or will you continue to reject him? It's up to you. Would you call out to him right now, right where you are? Would you just declare, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Make me brand new. I need your forgiveness because I'm a sinner. And I believe that you have the power to forgive me of my sins. Do you need help with the prayer? Then pray, it, pray this after me. Just mean it with your heart. That's what we've been talking about. And say this, dear God, thank you that you love me and that you proved it by sending your son to die for me. Jesus, I need you because I'm a sinner. And I need your forgiveness. You're my only hope. I believe that you died on the cross. And I believe that you rose again three days later. And when you did, you gave me victory. So I trust in you for the salvation of my soul. Guide my life from this day forward. For I am yours. It's in your powerful name that I pray. Amen.